You're listening to a TVO podcast. The following podcast contains coarse language, descriptions of violence, and sensitive themes which may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In 2.1 kilometers, the destination is on your left, Central East Correctional Center. And this really does feel like the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You'll notice you have all these homes and then you have a big complex. Right. It's one of the biggest jails in Ontario, right? Yeah. You know that, right? Obviously. Yeah. So, when's the last time you were at Lindsay? So I went there one time to take a picture. This was like a year ago. But my hands were shaking, so I didn't go over to this. And for my family, it's the first time for everyone else today. That's Yusuf Fakiri. He's on his way to a rally that he's organized, just outside the Lindsay Jail. In 2016, Yusuf's brother, Suleiman, was arrested after an incident with his neighbor and was sent to the Lindsay Jail. After 11 days in solitary confinement, a struggle occurred between him and correctional officers. I am nervous giving this talk this afternoon. Why are you nervous? I'm nervous that I personally will break down. I'm nervous that I myself might not recover from giving this speech because unlike other speeches, I am literally in front of the scene of his death. I am so pleased to um, be here today with you at the Central East Correctional Center, otherwise known as the Lindsay Super Jail. Today's action has been organized by Justice for Sali and a new mobilization... It's a blistering hot summer day, and Yusuf has gathered around 50 people outside the jail. They're not allowed on the property, so everyone's sort of congregated on the road right outside of the front entrance. Police have blocked the road completely, almost ensuring no one passing by can see the rally. The event begins with a recitation of the Quran. On one side of the road sits a small farmhouse next to a towering green barn. There's a man on the front porch slowly rocking in his chair facing the jail and getting a front row seat to the rally. On the other side of the road is a building completely surrounded by tall evergreen trees. You'd almost miss it if you weren't paying attention. But when you look closer, you'll see a massive and sprawling prison in the middle of rural Lindsay, Ontario. Yusuf Fakiri steps up to the mic. His mother, sister, and brother are standing behind him holding a large photo of Suleiman Fakiri. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It was a very painful uh, morning, and I'm nervous, and I'm not usually nervous in my talks, but I am. Because right there was in December 15th, Guards pepper sprayed Suleiman twice, gave him 50 bruises while his hands were tied. Off in the distance, Kawartha Lake's police and correctional officers are listening closely to what Yusuf believes happened to his brother. It's been three and a half years, ladies and gentlemen, and we still don't have justice for Suleiman. But let's talk about three and a half years. Écoutez très bien, mesdames et messieurs. It's as if Suleiman's life was cheap. As if anyone who's suffering from mental illness, their lives are cheap. My family, the pain of this woman, or my father back there, 
We continue to die every single day because we have not received our justice. My mother told me the night of December 15, 2016, she said, Yusuf, I don't have a tongue. You're going to fight for my son because it's the right thing to do. And we didn't stop since that day. And we will not stop since that day until we achieve justice. Nearly four years to the day that a man died on the floor of a jail cell. The 30-year-old man died alone in solitary confinement at the Central East Correctional Center in Lindsay. Fakiri, who had a history of schizophrenia, was found with 50 signs of blunt impact trauma to his body. His family have been pushing for a thorough investigation into his death. The police know enough now to lay a charge, and it is baffling us why uh, they continue to delay. And while a coroner's report found dozens of bruises on Solomon's body, the cause of death is listed as unascertained. I'm Yusuf Zin, and this is Unascertained. Mr. Zain, uh, my name is Yusuf Fakiri. Um, I hope you're uh, keeping well. Just want to get in touch with you to see if you're free to do a call soon to discuss the tragic story of my brother Suleiman. Back in September of 2019, I got a call from Yusuf Fakiri, who wanted to pitch me a story about his brother Suleiman. Yusuf had seen a documentary film I co-directed with my producing partner Kevin Young about Rohingya genocide victims. We're used to getting messages from people wanting to tell their life story or for us to follow them around with a camera. I told Yusuf we would take a look at his brother's story when we could. Later that night, I did some Googling and realized I knew this story. Back in 2017, it was all over the news and then sort of disappeared. I wasn't sure what was left to be told, but I was intrigued. So I called Yusuf back and arranged to come to his apartment. And by the way, I'm sure you've realized by now that Yusuf and I have the same first name. So don't worry, I'm not speaking in third person. Yeah, this will uh, probably be the only ever interview where the Yusuf is interviewing Yusuf. That, you know, I know. Story, you know? <laughs> and if we do find another Yusuf to Yusuf, you're not gonna find the Yusuf to Yusuf with Y-U-S-U-F. Yeah, that's true. This too. is it. So there's like anything. very few Yusufs I've met that with our spelling. It's always yeah. Y-O-F. So you're not gonna find. Y everyone spells your name wrong? Yeah. Yeah, because there's so many variations, Kevin, even though yeah. it's actually, ironically, it's one of the most common and simplest. Yusuf is 36 years old and works as a civil servant. He's about 5'9, sports a finely trimmed goatee, and a pair of rectangular glasses. His apartment is a humble bachelor pad with a few paintings on the wall, a couch, no TV and a spacious balcony overlooking the bustling street outside. When we arrive, he serves us some traditional Afghan tea and dates. Being Muslim and South Asian myself, I feel right at home. Kevin, on the other hand, who grew up in a white Canadian household, looks at the plate of dates with hesitation. It's an acquired taste. Okay, so first of all, thank you, Yusuf, for having us in your home. And for for those who don't know who you are, do you mind just introducing yourself and telling us who you are? Yes, uh, so I'm um, Yusuf Fikiri. Um, I'm Suleiman's oldest brother. Suleiman had a story to tell. He was someone that that was in it, that was vulnerable. Um, he was someone that needed help, that needed compassion. And if you want to summarize it, you know, in in a few words, the justice system killed him. And I I think it's important for people to hear this. Give me one minute, Yusuf. Sure, take your time, take your time. 
Now, I want to be fully transparent here before we go any further. We're documentary filmmakers, not investigators. But for the past year, we've been trying to answer three crucial questions. How did Suleiman Fakiri die? Why was no one held accountable? And what happened during those 11 days? The Fakiri family believe they know how Suleiman died. But in this investigation, you're going to hear a lot of different and somewhat conflicting versions, both oral narratives and written accounts. Because there isn't any video footage that's been publicly released, we have to rely on witness statements, police reports, and court documents to tell the story. And finally, a word of warning. Some of this will be hard to listen to. You're going to hear a lot of uncomfortable details. But I want to take you with me to try to make sense of this case. And to do that, we need to go back a little bit. I was born in a country that overnight became a war zone and my family lost everything. And on both sides of my family, I've lost, I lost family members during the war. And we were, one, we were one of the few lucky ones. The Fakiri family came as refugees to Canada in the early 1990s from Kabul, Afghanistan, which at the time was seeing the aftermath of the Soviet Union invasion. They settled in the city of Pickering, just 30 minutes outside of downtown Toronto. It's mainly suburban, with some agricultural areas and a nuclear power plant on its shores. And that's where we spent our formative years, you know, and uh, just like any other immigrant refugee family, you know, life, it had its challenges. And how did Suleiman adjust to coming to Canada? And you know, I'll be honest with you, uh, I struggled more. He actually excelled. Excelled because he was younger. He picked up English a lot faster than me. You know, even when he was in grade school and stuff, like, he was a star athlete. Whereas I would spend time in ESL, at this program called English as Second Language. Sully, I don't think, spent much time there. Suleiman, or Sully, as he's nicknamed, didn't spend his time running around with girls or going to parties like most young guys do at that age. He was into chess, devoted himself to his religion, and was captain of his high school rugby team. As a kid, when I was bullied, he would always be there for me, you know, and he, was, he would always tell me that he loved me. Even though sometimes at the beginning as a kid, it's very hard for us to say back to our sibling. So they man did that. That's who he was. Everyone we spoke with said that there was just something special about Sully. Uh, they were my next-door neighbors. Like, we were next-door neighbors, and we didn't have a division between our fence between the houses because our families got along that well. There was no fence between you? Yeah, we didn't put a fence between ours. That's pretty rare. Yeah, it was just one big sort of communal backyard between our families. That's Neil Forrester, one of the Fakiri family's neighbors. Solomon sort of stood out from the rest of the brothers. He was a lot more religious, so he dressed... Uh, I don't even really know if it's a Muslim thing or a religious thing or not, but he used to wear sort of these outfits that you could tell he was Muslim. Plus he had the beard and sort of he, you know, he, he kind of carried himself in, in that capacity where you could tell his religion. Whereas with his brothers, they didn't wear those clothes, you know, they didn't have the beard. So he definitely stood out um, and his body was much bigger. Like he was a bigger guy. He was like 250, 260 pounds. Even at 20? Yo, he was always, yeah, he was always a big guy. Uh, but when we got to know him, he was like just the nicest guy, just like a gentle giant, you know? I've seen a lot of photos of Sully, and Neil's description is pretty accurate. Traditional Muslim robes and hats, a long beard, and a boyish smile. Even in one family photo, where everyone seems to be wearing suits and tuxedos, Suleiman is the only one wearing traditional Muslim garb. 
Suleiman attended the University of Waterloo for engineering, which is a pretty tough program to get into. Unfortunately, his academic career didn't last very long. He was in his second semester in his first year. He got in a car accident in spring 2005. And I believe shortly after that car accident, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Suleiman's car accident led to a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And because of this, he was unable to continue his education and dropped out of university. It hurt him a lot, Yusuf, at the beginning, because here is someone who is so smart, someone who's able to connect with anybody he wanted to on an intellectual level. And the illness sometimes will take that away from him. Schizophrenia took his life that he had. And although he was going through and first his entire life post-schizophrenia, he had this, this faith and this ability to really always put others ahead of him. People need to know that part about him because oftentimes the mistake that we make, the illness effectively becomes all of them. Suleiman was much, much more than that. Suleiman's mother, Maryam Fakiri, has never spoken publicly about her son until now. We've translated her Farsi. Among all of my children, Suleiman was the most outstanding. He was always very close to everyone and was always cheerful and full of laughter. Before guests would come over, Suleiman would make sure to clean the entire house. He would always open the door to guests with happiness, no matter who it was. Suleiman always acted as a strong source of support to the entire family, and as a father figure to his siblings. I don't even know how to describe him to you, to describe who he was. Suleiman to me was like a valuable diamond. God gave him to me and then took him back. But its memory stays with me. And I remember it often. Suleiman and his mother, Maryam, were extremely close, even more so than her other children, she tells us. They spent time together constantly. For the 11 years that Suleiman struggled with schizophrenia, his mom was always there to care for him. When he would get very sick with his schizophrenia, his siblings would be scared that he would hurt me during these episodes telling me to be careful because he's very sick right now. But it was very easy for me to be patient with him. One thing that would cause me pain was when he was admitted to the hospital. But even then, he was never without his phone, so I would be able to speak to him and hear his voice. What caused me the most pain and distress was the 11 days that he was in prison because I didn't get to hear his voice and they didn't allow me to see him. The pain from that is an ongoing wound. I still suffer to this day. Suleiman and I were very close, and we had a very treasured and deep connection. When I talk about Suleiman, I speak straight from the heart, as his stories are so unique. Hello, it's Chris Somerville. Hi, Chris. This is Yusuf Zin calling from the podcast. Thank you, Yusuf. Am I pronouncing it right, Yusuf? Yeah, that's correct. All right. My southern accent's not helping me much. (laughs) (laughs) Chris is the CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada. 
He was born in Birmingham, Alabama, but lives and works in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So schizophrenia is a mental disorder in which the person has, at times, extreme difficulty between telling the difference, uh, what's real and what's not real. The reason why the person is having difficulty distinguishing reality is because they're either experiencing hallucinations or delusions. Hallucinations has to do with your five senses, and the most common hallucination is hearing voices that aren't there, but some people see things that aren't there, can feel things that aren't there, taste things that are not there, etc. A delusion is when you have a fixed thought that has no basis in reality, um, that the RCMP have bugged my house, or there's paranoia um, uh, that there are you know, people trying to kill me and I can hear their voices. The voice may sound like it's coming from outside of your body or it's inside your body. People can have two or three or four types of different voices and they can be male, female, and one voice may be very nice and kind and the other one very hostile and uh, harsh. We know that the family has attributed the start of his illness to a car accident. He was in a really bad car accident, and that was sort of the start. Can that be a cause? Um, oh, yeah. Yes, it can be. Uh, certain brain injuries can create schizophrenia. I've met a number of people with brain injury who have schizophrenia. So the traumatic effect on the brain in the particular part of the brain results in that psychosis. Chris even told me that environmental factors like childhood trauma, bullying, and drugs can contribute to the development of schizophrenia. If that's true, I wonder what effects being in jail would have. Is it possible, because, you know, he was in um, solitary confinement, which can be very difficult circumstances for anybody, uh, is that enough for somebody who has schizophrenia, who's getting their medication regularly, but in a solitary confinement cell for 11 days, um, no, 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 that is so barbaric. Uh, it only heightens the emotions. That, that's just an archaic practice of force control, and it worsens their symptoms of schizophrenia. If 42% of Canadians are saying that they have significant anxiety and distress and depression, well, then you throw a person who has schizophrenia into an isolation unit, which is 100 times worse than physical distancing, sure, it's going to mess up the person's brain chemistry. How common is that for uh, someone with mental health to be diverted to a correctional facility? Well, it's much more common today than it was 10 years ago. And so my understanding is right with Solomon. He was taken to the Central East Correctional System awaiting assessment. No, no, he should have been taken to a forensic hospital, which is a secure place. He was not trying to be mean that day. He was scared to death because he, he could feel what was going on in his mind. And he knew where he was, and that was a threatening situation. Despite his schizophrenia, Suleiman seemed to thrive in different ways. He started becoming closer to his faith as a Muslim, and he learned Arabic. He continued to be the loving brother, son, uncle, and neighbor that everyone knew. That gentle giant. Funny little things, but they were harmless, right? And then he came to me the last time I saw him alive, the last time we spoke. That's Neil again, Suleiman's neighbor. 
uh, which would have been, I'm saying three weeks before he passed away. He would tell me these stories, just like, you know, Neil, like, there's voices in my head and I can't sleep and I'm hurting. And he would just tell me like how he's in pain. There was a story you told, uh, I don't know if you mind telling it, is when he came to your house one day and brought over a ring. Do you, mm-hmm. do you remember this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, every time I tell that story, I get emotional. He knocked on my door randomly one day, middle of the week, seven o'clock at night. And I see this big friggin' body in front of my doorway. And I'm like, who the hell's at my door? I open the door and it's him. And I'm looking at him. He's got this blank look in his face staring at me. And I'm like, what's up, man? And he just hands me this ring. He goes, in the Quran, it says our Christian brothers are going to protect us. It was random. We hadn't even talked in probably a week. I hadn't seen him. I don't even know where this came from. So the reason I get emotional is it's like, what would spark for him to take this piece of jewelry off his hand and hand it to me? And say, here, you're my brother. You know, we're not the same religion, but we are. We're brothers. He's like, I want you to know I'll protect you because I know you protect me. It's the weirdest thing. But it's so nice and pure. It still obviously affects me to this day. Can you go into detail of the events on the night of his arrest? Like, yeah. Now, was this at your house in Ajax? Like, he was living with you at the time? He was at my sister's house at that time. The Fakiri family shared a copy of the Kawartha Lakes Police Report with us. So the details of what you're going to hear next are from those records. On December 4th, 2016, Suleiman was arrested by Durham Regional Police on charges of assault, aggravated assault, and uttering threats. A dispute took place between Suleiman and his sister's neighbor. When the neighbor's daughter intervened, Suleiman allegedly stabbed her in the stomach with an edged weapon. I spoke to the family of the neighbor, who told me that she was rushed to the hospital. The injury was pretty serious, but thankfully it wasn't fatal. While they didn't want to be interviewed for this podcast, the woman's sister told me that there was no animosity towards Suleiman. My sister and my mom was alerted, and they alerted me. Okay. What, what was your reaction to that? I was shocked. I was, I was nervous. First thing I thought was like, okay, we need to get help, right? After spending the night in custody at a Durham Regional Police Station, Suleiman was sent for a bail hearing at the Ontario Court of Justice in Oshawa. He was then transferred to the Central East Correctional Centre in Lindsay that same day. On December 6th, Suleiman was moved to a segregation unit known as Range 2. The move was due to safety concerns for Suleiman, staff, and other inmates. He was brought before the court again that day. They ordered him back into custody with the hope that three days of medication might help. Did you and your family ever go to try to visit Suleiman? Four times. Four times? Four times. And did you ever see him? No, Yusuf. And to this even I've been told why. Did you know that he was being placed in segregation? Did they tell you that? No, Yusuf. We don't even know what was happening to him. Yusuf and his family tried to visit Suleiman with the goal of alerting staff of his mental illness, making sure he received his medication, and to comfort him during his stay there. I waited for about an hour and a half to see the manager. Then I said, I need to see my brother. They said, we can't, you can't see him. And I spoke to her, saying that Suleiman suffered from mental illness. And what did she say? She said, we understand. You know, we, we're going to take extra precautions. But what, what was the reason she said you can't see him? You're not able to see him. She never gave us a reason, Yusuf. She didn't say there's a lockdown or... No, not at all. 
December 9th, the date of his next appearance in court. But Suleiman wasn't there. The correctional officers weren't able to take him to the screening area because he was in, quote, crisis that day. According to a witness statement from an inmate on Sully's range, that crisis had been building ever since he arrived. Suleiman was brought again for a bail hearing via video link on December 12th. This time, his brother Yusuf and a nurse from the jail attended the court in person. Yusuf noticed right away that something with his brother wasn't right. He looked really unwell, but, uh, you know, I try to remember fondly that smile. So you could tell, like, just from looking at him that he, he seemed unwell. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't look well. Yeah. The judge ordered that Suleiman was to be transferred to a mental health hospital called Ontario Shores for an assessment to determine if he was fit to stand trial. But he never made it to that hospital. December 15th, the 11th day. Suleiman was transferred to a new segregation range called Unit 8, also known as 8-Seg. Staff felt like he could be better supervised there. Suleiman was then taken to the shower, but didn't leave for an hour and a half. He'd been squirting water at the correctional officers. Unable to get him out of the shower, officers summoned their supervisors to request the Institutional Crisis Intervention Team, known as ICIT. This is the team that's specifically trained in moving violent and non-violent inmates in a jail. They look like a SWAT team, wearing all black body armor and helmets. But the request for ISA to intervene in this situation was denied. Eventually, a psychologist arrived and was able to calm him down. Sully agreed to be handcuffed. His escort consisted of six correctional officers. They walked Suleiman to his cell, but he became upset. He spat at one of the officers and was being, quote, assaultive and resistive. The officer delivered an open hand strike but missed. The struggle continued in the hallway, and Suleiman was pepper sprayed. Eventually, he was pushed and pulled into the cell along with the six officers. Now, there are no surveillance cameras in any of the cells, and none of the correctional officers were wearing body cameras. So I just want to remind you that this description is from the police interviews and witness statements from the same report. As soon as Suleiman was in the cell, the six guards struggled with him for several minutes. Eventually, a code blue was called, meaning the guards needed help, and 20 to 30 correctional officers arrived at the cell area. Eventually, the officers gained control of Suleiman. They slowly backed out of his cell and closed the door, leaving him on the ground, face down. A short time later, officers peered into the cell and noticed Suleiman wasn't breathing. They entered the cell, removed the handcuffs, and commenced CPR. Shortly after, nurses arrived with a defibrillator. Paramedics were immediately called and eventually arrived on the scene. But life-saving efforts failed. I was sitting upstairs um, in my room, in my bed, talking to a friend. My sister barges in my door, says, Yusuf, Sully's dead. I'm like, what? And so like, you obviously know when someone like gets shocked, right? I'm like, I'm running downstairs. I go to the kitchen. 
and I see my mom pacing. Literally pacing back and forth, saying in Farsi, oh, My beautiful son, I gave you milk. Why'd you do this to me? Why'd you leave me? And that was just happening back and forth. She's talking. Saying, I love you. Why'd you leave me, you saw me? So this is now like a minute in, and I was just horrified. And I'm not even able to process this. I turn around and go back in front of the door. My dad's talking to the two police officers. Um, they come sit down. The only thing they said to my dad is that um, Suleiman died after an incident with the guards. That's literally the only information we had. Suleiman died after, after an incident with the guards. Like after an incident with the guards or after guards entered his cells. That's all. There's nothing else that they said. That was the only information they That's gave you? all the information. That was pretty much the, all the information we had for about eight months. The Fakiri family would then await the results of a coroner's report and the Kawartha Lakes police investigation. After Suleiman's body was released to the family, they immediately began to prepare for his burial. In the Islamic faith, when someone passes away, it's tradition to bury the body within 24 hours. This involves a ritual cleansing of the body by a family member. And so the Fakiri family began their preparations. It's horrifying. I was, it was, when we went on Saul's body, it was painful. But the couple hours before his burial was even more painful for me personally. For the audience to know, and in our tradition, we wash the body. And being the oldest brother, I'm supposed to lead that. So we one of the leaders of it. Obviously, my dad couldn't bear. I got into the room with other people, and I fainted. Twice. Because when I saw his body, I couldn't look. Suleiman's body was covered from head to toe in bruises, cuts, and gashes. I've tried for a long time to block it, yeah. But I will say, the thing that always stood out was there was this huge gash on his forehead. There was a gash on his forehead? Yes, sir. Huge gash on his forehead. So that's when you knew, that was the moment you found out that he didn't just die of natural causes. Yusuf, that, for me, seeing those bruises on his body, Yusuf, continued to confirm that something wrong would happen. This is like the worst thing that could happen because his family expected the police to take care of him until he was, you know... That's Anwar Daoud. He was one of Suleiman's friends and attended the funeral, which in Islam is called a janazah. We drove over to the, the uh, cemetery and we basically buried him. I was there for that. So I seen it firsthand. Was there an open casket? Yeah, yeah. His family allowed... And that, that was like... That was one of the most dramatic moments I can remember clearly seeing him, um, you know, laying there in just bruises and, and lacerations all over him. I can only see his face because he's wearing the shroud from below his neck, but his head and his face was bruised in multiple places. When the coroner's report was finally released after eight months, the family was looking forward to getting some answers. The report is long and mostly medical jargon but it does detail at least 50 different bruises, abrasions, and lacerations all over Suleiman's body. But when it came to the cause of death, the answer everyone had been waiting for, the status was listed as unascertained. In other words, the coroner could not determine exactly how Suleiman died. Looking at the coroner's report, I was like, okay, this, there's now a clear cut thing here is that, okay, there's 50 bruises, something wrong happened here. There needs to be accountability. We're just waiting, okay, there'll be criminal charges. 
And then what happened? The Court of Lakes Police sent an email saying there's no grounds for charges. Not a single person at the jail was charged in the case of Suleiman Fakiri, and the investigation was officially closed. The Fakiri family waited over 10 months, only to be left with more questions like, why was Suleiman never sent to the hospital? What was he doing in solitary confinement? And what happened in that cell? Ontario guards killed my brother in a violent beating. Next time on Unascertained. That individual came into this facility without one single mark on his body. Where does this all come from? People were being held in segregation. No one had diagnosed mental health issues. It can be such a dangerous form of custody. Is it legal to do that? <laughs> you know, that should be a simple question. It's not. It's a complex question. This shit that I was seeing was some stuff you'd only see on TV. I've never seen any of this stuff ever happen in prison. Unascertained is written and produced by me, Yusuf Zin, and Kevin Young. Kevin Young is also our audio engineer. Our story editor is Michelle Shepard. Our intern is Selena Gallardo. Our legal counsel is Willa Marcus. Farsi translation by Jose Firmly. Katie O'Connor is our producer for TVO Podcasts. The executive producer of Digital for TVO is Lori Few. The executive for Current Affairs and Documentaries for TVO is John Ferry. Theme song and music by Blue Dot Sessions. Unascertained is produced by Innerspeak and TVO.